Welcome to the Church and State Show. In this episode, one of the last ones for the year, one of the last regular Friday episodes for 2023, I'm going to be talking about free speech. What is it? What is hate speech? Should hate speech be banned? Should free speech be absolute? Zero restrictions. We're going to be talking about that as well as the idea of reformation, which is the major theme for next year's Church and State Summit. We're going to be asking ourselves the question, uh, what is Reformation? And, and not the branch of theology, but what does it look like for both Christians and for every Australian? How do we reform Australian politics, Australian culture? Should we? What are the benefits of it? And what would it look like if we did? Moreover, should Christianity be reformed? Should Christianity be always reforming? We're not talking about the branch of theology, but we're talking about how do we get back to our basics, how back, back to our origins, back to orthodoxy and authenticity in both churches and culture. This, I believe, is for the benefit of the nation. All that in this episode of The Church and State Show. I'm Dave Pello. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Freedom. What a buzzword. But again, what point is freedom? If we don't understand the telos, the purpose of freedom, then we really don't understand freedom at all. What is super important is to get that right. I believe each type of freedom has its own purpose. Now, in a Western, pluralistic, democratic society like Australia, the purpose of freedom is quite often to engage meaningfully in the public square. We need to be able to contest ideas. We need to be able to ventilate ideas. We need to be able to scrutinize them and examine them. Uh, but in this society, there has been a whole lot of uh, easily offended people who are conflating ideas with identities. And that's a terrifying thing because all of a sudden, identity, which is sacred, uh, becomes a way of shielding ideas, which may be terrible, deeply flawed, and not even close to sacred. For example, the concept of multiculturalism. How God made you, the skin you're in, the pigment, the shape of your nose, the color of your hair, or even the nation that you come from, these are inherent to who you are. They're unchangeable. But culture is not how God created you. Culture is a set of customs, traditions, beliefs. It's essentially ideas, habits, things that you really can change. Uh, we have things in Western culture which should be changed. Our love of death. We are infatuated in this culture with killing others. We want to kill old people and sick people and we want to kill preborn people. We've industrialized and perfected the arts of making it look clinical and sterile when in fact it's barbaric and grossly immoral. 
these are things that aren't inherent to the way God created us. They are culture. They are ideas. And these things should be brought into alignment with the kingdom of God, the character of God, his objective morality and truth. And so freedom, which uh, protects bad ideas like the child sacrifice industry, that is not an authentic freedom or at best it's an abuse of an authentic freedom. Likewise, the, the butchering of the definition of marriage. Uh, now, how God made you is not the same as the way you behave. Your behaviors are one thing, uh, but the way God created you with your gender, that is an entirely different thing. We're even seeing an attack on the sacred. And yet that is the thing which people are saying you can debate, you can change, and uh, you have to accept whatever I say. But the reality is uh, that God created that. Now, if I maintain that view, that doesn't mean I hate people who behave differently to the way that God designed. It doesn't mean that I hate people who disagree with me about the ideas uh, God has. And, and really, I was going to say my ideas, but I try to actually just calibrate to God's ideas. They're not my original thought. I don't think I've had an original thought in my life. I don't think very many people have. But the, the fact is that uh, these thoughts about marriage, sexuality, uh, culture, and, and so forth, so many people conflate these ideas with identity. Identity is something that's important, but ideas should be tested and challenged. And here's where we come across the concept of hate speech. People who choose to be offended call what you say in causing them offense hate speech. Now, if I'm talking one-on-one -on -one to you, then it's fairly easy for me to avoid offending you. I know the kind of things that are sensitive to you, probably. And if we're having a meaningful discussion and you're sincere and I'm sincere, we can probably avoid offense. But if I'm talking to, like I am now, hundreds or thousands of people, the chances are very high that somebody is going to be offended if I talk about anything of importance. Why? Because we have differences of opinions. And if somebody conflates their opinion with their identity, then uh, they may perceive wrongly that they have been harmed. And in actual fact, the harm was not given, the offence was taken. Let's have a listen right now to Amnesty International's opinion on what constitutes free speech and hate speech, and I'll give you my thoughts as we go through it. Freedom of expression is a human right that people have long fought to uphold and protect. We all have the right to express ourselves, no matter how controversial or offensive. But what about hate speech? How do we balance someone's right to express their opinion against another's right to be free from discrimination? You've probably seen or heard of this. I'm not sure right now that this person even has the definition of discrimination right. What does discrimination mean? Does it simply mean to be able to choose between two options? Uh, well, I, I think that that is probably a stretch of something that somebody should be expected to be free from. You can't expect to be free from somebody else's choices. What you can expect to be free from is actual harm to you, actual harm. And that's probably financial or physical. If you've got some other ideas about that, let me know about any other real harms that people should be protected from. This scenario before, a person is invited to present their beliefs, say at a college or in a newspaper. They are known for hateful beliefs. Another group opposes them. 
trying to shut down their hate speech? Is the group in opposition interfering with the right to freedom of expression? Yes. This situation seems complicated. It's but it not. It's really not. Uh, one person's opinion of hate speech does not make hate speech. Uh, this is the actual problem that Jordan Peterson probably most famously uh, posed the, the crux of, and that is who gets to define hate speech? The people who are offended by it or some third-party independent arbitrator? And can there be an independent third-party arbitrator? Or is the reality that that person is eventually going to be uh, somebody that is incredibly harmful to at least somebody? And I mean in reality, by restricting God-given freedoms of expression. In fact, there is a simple answer. There is no formally agreed definition of hate speech. Correct. But it is generally understood as any form of expression that attacks or discriminates against someone on the basis of their identity such as your race, nationality, or gender. Expression must be restricted when it incites others to engage in discrimination, hostility, or violence towards a particular group. Stop. Discrimination, hostility, or violence. Now, we've got three very different things here. Uh, and lately, we've been hearing a whole lot about hate speech because of the dramatic rise in reprehensible anti-Semitism all around the world, especially on university campuses. The problem is that discrimination is a spectrum of measurable impacts on somebody. It could be that I'm discriminating against somebody by uh, criticizing their identity, but is there any real harm to that? Their feelings are hurt and it's not nice, uh, but is there any physical harm to them? No. Is there any financial harm to them? Well, no. And I'm not even 100% sure that that's always going to be a wrong thing. But hostility, now we're getting to somewhere that's, that's probably dangerous. So uh, people's ability to go onto a university campus or a shopping center or, or any public space and be free from hostility is probably something that we should be able to expect in a free and civil society. Because again, your right to freedom of any kind shouldn't impact on other people's freedoms. When your freedom uh, exercised starts to impact other people's freedoms enjoyed, uh, you're probably abusing your freedoms. Now, there may be exceptions to this, but bear with me as we go through and talk about this a whole lot. Where I do 100% agree with the definition this person has offered, and it's not a large agreement, but by the time your speech is inciting violence, that is definitely a destruction of other people's freedoms. Their freedoms are not violated or, or waived just because you have freedoms that you want to express. By the time you're actually harming me, you no longer have that right to continue to exercise your freedom in that way. And so it is with the incitement to violence. By the time you're actually inciting someone uh, with a realistic expectation that they will act on your invitation and encouragement, act on your words to harm someone else, uh, that is where I believe there is a limit to the freedom of speech. Public officials as state representatives are held to an even higher standard. No expression of racist or other intolerant views is acceptable. But not Now that's a morally subjective standard. In uh, the 19th century England, it was perfectly normal 
for politicians to have a great deal of disregard to different classes of society. Uh, and I think we can agree that it is immoral, but should it be illegal to be mean to other people? Uh, this is an important question and uh, something that we should consider because if we empower government to try to make people nice, A, the definition of what is nice is going to possibly and probably be weaponized by people who are in fact corrupt. The whole reason we have government and laws in the first place is the assumption that people are not perfect and then getting imperfect people to make those laws is certainly potentially going to end badly sometimes as we saw this decade with the policy pandemic. Not all expressions of hateful views amount to incitement. To determine whether there is incitement, we have to consider the context, the intent of the person speaking, the likelihood that others will act on the incitement and mm -hmm. other factors. Does this mean that we must just accept the expression of hateful ideas if there is no incitement? Absolutely not. People are free to express even hateful personal opinions, but they are not entitled to a large audience. Now, here's a leftist myth. It's a doublespeak. Uh, they're trying to confuse people by pretending that uh, what they call hate speech uh, may be entitled to be articulated, but it's not entitled to be heard. This is doublespeak. Uh, he said, I'm not entitled to a large audience. Here's the problem. That's exactly what freedom of speech means. It doesn't mean uh, that you uh, have a right to a large audience because freedom of speech never means you have a right to a large audience. And so what exactly is he talking about if he's talking about something that's never true? What he's talking about is the right to actually impede somebody's freedom of speech, which is why it's doublespeak. He's saying you have the right to say it, but you don't have the right to a big audience. Well, nobody has the right to a big audience, uh, but you don't have the right to choose what does and does not have uh, the potential for a big audience to be heard. And this is the problem with social media censorship, with big tech is they are presuming to choose what people should and shouldn't hear instead of letting people choose for themselves. So this is a whole heap of doublespeak. Yes, freedom of speech means you have the right to articulate even unapproved opinions, even opinions that I find reprehensible. And that is very, very important that people always have that right and that nobody is ever given the power to choose what opinions are approved or not approved. And this is the problem with the misinformation, disinformation agenda that the Australian government, both Liberal and Labor, have previously floated as a good idea to regulate around. No, it's not. It's a terrible idea because nobody should have the right to decide what is or isn't a good idea because the person who has that right will inevitably, eventually wield it in, in favour of their own accumulation of power, deeming everything that is critical of them misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, or for some other reason, uh, illegal and, and not permitted. And we are also free to challenge and disagree with them. People who campaign to shut down a public speech or a newspaper column are not silencing anybody. They are simply expressing themselves and asking for hateful opinions not to be amplified. We can all... Now, if somebody's asking for an opinion not to be amplified, and that is just an expression of their own opinions, 
that's fair enough. Here's where it crosses into a violation of free speech, is when you ask the government to reg regulate, legislate on your behalf to that effect. Ask away for other people's opinions to not be amplified. And it's up to the proprietor of whatever platform you are appealing to, to then decide whether they are going to be defenders of free speech and free communication, free expression, or whether or not they are going to moderate in a way. Now, I don't let people vandalize my TV. You can't come to my house with a can of spray paint and scroll epithets uh, about about how bad anything. You can't do that. Just because you have freedom of expression doesn't violate the principles of private property. I have freedom to set boundaries and rules on my property. And that includes on my website blog and on my social media channels. How I moderate those is exactly as pernicious as putting a no junk mail sticker on my letterbox. I am stopping people's, uh, I am limiting people's expression on my private property. I've never, ever, ever seeking to diminish somebody else's freedom of expression on their private property, on their social media profiles, on their TV or letterbox. Do whatever you want on your property, but on my property, it is not a violation of the good principles of free speech to have moderation guidelines. And so if you want to appeal to somebody else to shut down um, an opinion that you find abhorrent and reprehensible, for example, promoting terrorism, uh, I don't think that's necessarily wrong unless you expect the government to get involved. Where government should get involved is in prohibiting all illegal and criminal behavior. Where government should get involved is in protecting freedom of communication which includes freedom of conviction, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. All of these things are necessary for a liberal, inclusive, pluralistic democracy where bad ideas are as free to be expressed and exposed as are good ideas to be advocated and articulated. But when you try to enlist the power of government to shut down something that offends you, or you disagree with, that isn't in fact destructive to anybody else's freedoms, that isn't in fact harmful, literally harmful to anybody else, uh, by, an, by an orthodox definition of harm, uh, then you have begun to violate freedom of speech by trying to enlist the government to support your opinion. Next, let's have a look at people whose speech should be shut down people who should be stopped, people who should be silenced and sent away. I support Hamas. History is made that day. Very proud of my people. Very, very proud. Would love it if they would do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. So she's proud of mass rape, torture, slaughter, babies being beheaded, families burnt alive, women being gang raped and brutally killed. Uh, what is she doing so in the West? So feminist. At a university. What is she doing feminist. in the West? All the lefties who see fascism and Nazism and dog Triggering, whistles. Trigger warnings. Safe spaces. When someone is actually advocating for That's the right. murder of Jews, again and again and again like she was 
Where are they? What happened, Rita? You remember, exactly. Rita, when, um, you know, a few years back when the whole big debate on Twitter was whether or not it was all right to punch a Nazi and mm. lefty Twitter said, oh, yeah, 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 let's punch a Nazi. And, of course, what they meant was punch a Trump supporter. What they didn't mean was <laughs> mm-hmm. actually punch somebody who wanted to murder Jews in the most heinous ways. That would be an actual Nazi, guys. But, you know, we don't punch them. So what Rita goes on to explain is that uh, for so many years, Uh, The left and people who like to describe themselves as anti-fascist have been diagnosing everybody right of Stalin as Nazis. Uh, And as James Morrow said, uh, you can actually uh, see history of people saying you should go around and punch a Nazi, uh, which is literally inciting people to violence. Uh, but not against actual Nazis, but against people who vote differently to them. People who support any idea right of centre, such as Trump supporters. Uh, It's absolutely noxious, and they're conflating uh, the opposition of really evil things, such as Nazis, with opposition and violence towards people who disagree with them. Half the country, uh, and people who are... uh, well, in my opinion, many times more morally calibrated than themselves. But what about these people who are demonstrating extreme, radical, uh, fanatical Islamist ideas, uh, the history of opposition to Israel and Jews in the Holy Land, uh, when they start saying, I hope they do it again. I support the terrorists. I support these people who mass murder Jews and brutalize them, the definition, if there is any, of Nazis, should such a person, if not a citizen, be even be allowed to stay in the country? Should the visas, the student visas, the other type of visas for foreign visitors to our nation be sustained and left untroubled when they are on our streets inciting violence and supporting listed terrorist organizations in their mass murdering barbaric sprees of butchery upon the moral and innocent citizens of the moral state of Israel. I'd be interested in your opinions. Please let me know in the comments beneath this video. My opinion, no. Why would we let people of such deficient character continue to pollute the fabric of our society? And that's what they are. Their ideas are pollution. They, as people, of course, are precious in the sight of God and should be called to repentance in the hope that they can avoid eternal damnation. But their ideas, their culture, is not equal with all other cultures. These ideas are destructive to the freedoms that Australians enjoy. They're destructive to a quiet and peaceable democracy. The right to protest, as articulated in the First Amendment in the American Bill of Rights, is not the right to protest, but the right to peaceably protest. And if you're inciting violence or actually engaging in vandalism, rioting, looting, destruction of private property or even trespass, you are not participating in peaceable protest. You don't have the right to destroy other people's lives, or freedoms, or property. Now, is it a right to be mean, to not be nice? 
Well, there's an article that I want to share with you here from Family First, a brilliant Christian political party in this nation. But I'm not sure they've got this policy exactly right. The webpage reads, right now it's perfectly legal in some states like New South Wales for a shop to display a sign saying, no Christians. And some state governments want to prevent faith-based schools from deliberately hiring teachers who share their Christian values. Australians have been promised legal protection for their religious freedom for nearly five years, but the federal parliament has failed to deliver. Woke activists are attacking the Judeo-Christian family values our nation was founded upon. If you don't fight for your religious freedom now, it will be lost. I don't agree that it should be illegal for people to exclude Christians, me, from their shop on the basis of my religious identity. That's not uh, self-interest at work. Clearly not. Uh, and, and this is the test of a, a genuinely held belief, when it's to your disadvantage if you uh, still hold that opinion. And I do. I believe it's the right of shop owners to be jerks, to be bigots, to be hateful. If they want to do that in a way that... And by the way, Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. This isn't an abstract aberration. And sure, it's uh, not a daily fear for my life that I have living in the West, in Australia, uh, but it is not a faraway distant thing to imagine Christians being heavily persecuted. We are the most persecuted people group on the planet, uh, usually outside the West. But if a shop had a sign in a window that said no Christians allowed, I would not agree with trying to uh, sick the power of government onto that shop owner. That's their private property. They should be able to make whatever terrible decisions they like which do not physically or financially harm me in a deliberately destructive way. If they want to have as their customers everybody but Christians, that's their prerogative. Surely that's their freedom. Now, I would not say that the power of the free market should be withheld from such a person. It would be morally appropriate for me to expose them, to humiliate them, and to encourage everybody to stay away from their shops, not just Christians, but all people who believe bullies, bigots, haters, and horrible people like such a hypothetical shop owner uh, should be punished uh, where it hurts, not with the power of government, but with the power of consumers, with the power of the free market. And likewise, I think people such as Christians who either for very bad reasons or, more commonly, for very good reasons of conviction and conscience, don't want to help celebrate things which violate their conscience. Private property should be treated as private property and government shouldn't be involved at all uh, because the logical extension of government getting involved in trying to make people nice is it will deem Christian, moral, civilized behaviors as not nice when it contradicts and critiques behaviors which are not nice. Uh, and, and we get into this wrestling game of definitions and morality. Uh, the simple fact is that the minute we start to empower the government to try to make people nice, 
is, is when we rapidly descend into tyranny. The best thing for discrimination laws in Australia is not their escalation and ratcheting up until everything and everyone is wrapped in cotton wool and protected. The best thing is the complete abolition of all discrimination laws which apply to private property and private individuals. I do believe discrimination laws should exist to prohibit government, government employees and public properties, public venues such as national parks from discriminating against anybody for any reason. There should be absolutely none of that reprehensible behavior from government. And, and to be clear, I am calling uh, discriminatory, discriminatory behavior reprehensible. Now, obviously not all discrimination is bad. I don't put diesel in my petrol engine uh, because uh, it's going to be destructive to it. Discrimination is incredibly healthy. I don't give my children nothing but chocolate and ice cream for the first five years of their life because discriminating between healthy and unhealthy in a diet is good discrimination. And likewise in society, there are many times when we should wisely exercise judgment, good judgment, and wise discrimination to make sure that the cultural diet, the ideological diet, the behavioral inclinations that we are exposed to are encouraging us and forming us into good citizenship and good character. And there are many things that are harmful and less than ideal. And what the government should be involved in is promoting the ideal. And so to make discrimination illegal uh, is to presume that nobody has the right to exercise their own good judgment or wise choices between two options or more. And in this story on the ABC website, the story reads, New South Wales police charged 23 pro-Palestinian activists, which means pro-Hamas, over protest against Israeli shipping line ZIM at Sydney's Port Botany. It began as a peaceful but passionate demonstration here at Sydney's largest port with pro-Palestinian supporters coming to protest an Israeli cargo ship. And this isn't the first time that they have come here. Uh, previously, about 10 days ago, they came to protest the arrival of a ship as well. But the night ended last night with police forcibly removing some of the activists and laying almost two dozen arrests the company's CEO has previously said that they would move ships and infrastructure to help Israel's defence ministry. And the protest then moved from a public area to one of the entry points to the port. And police say that this gathering was unauthorised and that they have laid 23 arrests. But we are yet to find out whether any charges have been laid. And good. Police absolutely should get involved in that horrendous kind of, of scene because this is private property, people not just attempting to have their say, but trying to stop other people have freedom of trade, freedom of commerce, freedom of movement, freedom of association. How dare they presume to lecture a company that they may not support a democratic, liberal, pluralistic, moral state like Israel in its battle against a genocidal terrorist regime like Hamas? How, even if it was Russia versus Ukraine, how dare they presume to stop anybody else having an opinion or taking a side? 
It's fair enough that they want to boycott it, let them use their free speech to do so. Again, probably more based in hatred than rationality. Uh, but let them be bigots. Uh, where they should be scorned and punished by the law is where they attempt to infringe on other people's rights to prevent them physically from having freedom of movement, freedom of trade, freedom of commerce, freedom of association, uh, as we saw in that video. That is the destruction of freedom. That is not the exercise of freedom. That is the vandalism of democracy and political communication in this nation. That is a bad use of freedom. And that is exactly what the government should be engaged in preventing other people from doing. Okay, next we have the free market in place. Remember how I said uh, people should be able to boycott bigots, uh, not seek the power of government on others to shut down uh, their political opinions or, or their uh, behaviors uh, that aren't damaging. Uh, the shops should be allowed to put up a sign saying no Christians if they want to be that horrible a person. I, I think that is not something that government should get involved in and the free market really is the solution freedom of association etc minimizing the risk of shutting down political opinions uh, that are important especially the criticism of government but still allowing us the freedom to um, communicate uh, about the jerks and bullies and bigots that we see in the community um, that's i think a fair standard well Calvin Robinson is not just a campaigner for free speech, he is a campaigner for orthodoxy. He's a campaigner for good doctrine, and he is opposed to woke divism in the church. Watch this. But the problem with the woke uh, uh, perspective of this is it's a trap because you fall into this victimhood mentality. And I've seen so many people that I know and love fall into this trap of, well, the reason I haven't achieve what I wanted in life is because the systems are all against me. Everything is against me. Everyone's against me. And it's like, well, actually, at some point, you have to take personal responsibility. You have to take ownership mm -hmm. over your own life. And you have to, you know, believe that if you work hard enough, you can do anything you like. And you have to look for positive examples. You have to look at the fact that we've got the most ethnically diverse cabinet we've had in history. In fact, it's probably more ethnically um, made up of ethnic minorities than the native white Brits. Uh, we have, you know, uh, a Hindu prime minister, for goodness sake, a Muslim uh, uh, mayor of London. Uh, just we ha there was a African American president of the United States. Anyone of any ethnicity can achieve any high office they set out to in life. We don't live in a meritocratic society, but we live in the closest possible thing. And we've made so much progress in race relations, uh, both this side and that side of the pond, that we had to acknowledge the progress as well. And if we get in that victimhood mentality, we'll, we'll hold ourselves back. So it's not helpful. What do you think is, is, is the way that the church can, in a sense, market itself better? I've had some interesting conversations on other platforms with people like Tom Holland and Douglas Murray, people who are sort of attracted to church, though they find themselves also at odds sometimes with the church because they feel like they don't want it to look like the culture. They want it to have that sense of... Uh, of being right. an ancient place where you step into something that goes way beyond just the contemporary concerns of our of our culture right now how i'm sure you kind of share a lot in common with that with that how, how does the church actually go about doing that though how do we rise above in that sense all these these issues that we've been discussing so far 
So I disagree with some of that. I don't care aesthetically, liturgically. You know, I don't care personally. I'm very high church, and I I, I get something from um, a really ritualistic sacramental worship. But I appreciate that so many people don't. And since I've left the Church of England, I've been engaged with far more evangelicals than mm. anything else. And I've realized there is something, there is a lot of truth. There's not a lot of beauty, but there's a lot of truth <laughs> in evangelical worship. Uh, and that's a good thing. So we should search, we should seek out truth, beauty, and goodness wherever we can, because they are transcendentals that direct us back towards God. So I don't particularly think that I'm calling the church to be more traditional liturgically or aesthetically, but, but theologically. Mm. I'm calling for us to to be orthodox in our faith. The, the Reformation for me was about reforming the church. It's about going back to our roots. It's about looking to the church fathers, to the, the, to the faith once delivered to the apostles. It was, it was about returning to the scriptures. It was about refining our Catholicity. And we weren't the same as the Protestant movement in Europe that was protesting against Catholics. We were trying to rid ourselves of error and superstition from Rome, absolutely, and from the uh, jurisdiction and authority of Rome. Of course we were. But we were about reforming the faith. We weren't inventing a new faith. And I think that's fundamental to who we are as Anglicans. And, and uh, because to me, Anglicanism is the English expression of the Catholic faith. So it's about everything that I'm, I'm talking about is about looking backwards rather than looking forwards. And I know that sounds counterintuitive to many people in the modern world because we're always supposed to be looking forward because the, the future is better than what we have now. But I actually think we've lost the gospel. We've lost much of the gospel. So we have to reclaim it. And I often say the British Empire sent missionaries around the colonies to spread the, spread the good news. And now it's time for them to return the gospel to us because we're teaching a false gospel. We've lost the gospel. They've still got it. So those former colonies need to come and mm. send missionaries over to us. I completely agree and uh, couldn't put it much, much better myself. Uh, and for that reason, uh, I've invited uh, Reverend Calvin Robinson or Father Calvin Robinson uh, to Australia to be one of our feature speakers at the seventh annual Australian Church and State Summit. And that's going to be on March 8 and 9 in Brisbane. That's a Friday and Saturday. And uh, with a little bit of uh, help and cooperation and providence, we will be doing some preview events on a Tuesday and Wednesday night, the week of uh, a couple of days before we do the summit in Brisbane, we will be in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, Calvin Robinson and myself. Uh, but uh, look, you need to make an effort, plan in your diary to get to Brisbane uh, and stay at the Church and State Summit. Uh, come fly in Friday morning and uh, leave Sunday, maybe after church locally somewhere. Uh, and come to the Church and State Summit in Brisbane. People come from as far as Perth in the west and Auckland in the east. Uh, in fact, we've got guest speakers from Auckland coming uh, next year as well. And uh, we're going to have a conference uh, with a couple of different focuses and, and uh, sessions um, specialising in, in important public issues that are being debated and, and raging at the moment. Uh, and I won't get into those right now, but let's just recap Reformation because Reformation is the theme of the Church and State Summit for next year. And that is, how do we get back to what God said? Uh, and and I, I'm not opposed to religion or institutional denominations. Uh, I think it's well said uh, that uh, Jesus was God's effort to reach man and religion is man's effort to reach God. And that's not a bad thing, but it is still a human thing. It's imperfect. 
And so we should always be reforming. The church reformed should always be reforming. We should always be comparing ourselves to orthodoxy, to the original teaching of the church fathers and the apostles uh, and Jesus, uh, to the scriptures, to the prophets. We should be saying, is this what an authentic Christian looks like? And I guarantee an authentic Christian does not wave the rainbow flag, does not uh, pin the rainbow flag up in churches in an effort to better market or to be nice. Uh, There are many things which have crept into our liturgy and theology in the West, in various denominations and various congregations of various denominations, which bear little resemblance to the spirit of Christ, to an authentic, righteous fear of God. It is not our job to market the gospel. It is offensive naturally to the spirit of pride and the spirit of man who wants to be in control, uh, which is the opposite of having a Lord to whom you are entirely submitted. But it's not foreign to this nation. In fact, in 1901, it was baked into the preamble of the Australian Constitution that there should be an overarching humility in everything we do in the Constitution, in, in the parliaments and in the public, an overarching humility submitted under the Lordship of Almighty God. The preamble to the Australian Constitution says, whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, resolve to form an indissoluble commonwealth. And the rest of the Constitution goes on from there. But that important phrase was essential to the popular support that Australia enjoyed when her people voted in favour of adopting the Constitution as we now have it, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. Are you humble? Are you relying? Are you submitted to providence, the blessing of Almighty God? And if you're not, I submit that is the first thing you need to change if you want to see better government in this nation. It has to start with righteousness in self-government. You have to confess Jesus as Lord. You have to humble yourself under the blessing of Almighty God. If you want politicians and parliaments that do not think they are unaccountable and the highest authority in the universe, as we have seen them do for decades, and especially this decade, humility underneath Almighty God is what we want. Can you imagine a parliament filled with humble politicians? It seems counterintuitive. But can you imagine a voting population filled with humble voters who aren't seeking to line their own pockets or to benefit their own circumstances, but are seeking to love their neighbours, seeking to benefit the nation, seeking to promote a genuine objective truth and morality in this nation? That kind of citizenship, that kind of virtuous character can only come from a culture full of individuals whose hearts are humbled and submitted beneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. We need a reformation of culture. We need a spiritual reformation. We need a cultural reformation 
And these will lend themselves to a political reformation, which will last for generations. Generations which will set Australia well to advance into the rest of this century and the one after that, just as it did in 1901 and from which we have been departing for the last 50 years and wonder why there is so much depression, suicide, mental health conditions, uh, financial oppression, uh, people lining up in queues for free or cheap food. Uh, we have a nation which has uh, ridiculous uh, suicide rates, uh, ridiculous homelessness, uh, ridiculous uh, lack of flourishing, uh, lack of justice. There is competition and striving, polarization, friction and anger and hatred between so many camps. Everybody has been uh, split off and, and fractionalized into different minority groups, care of the advent of cultural Marxism, which is all about creating and maximizing conflict between people. We see cancel culture, which is the opposite of Christianity. It is full of of unforgiveness, resentment. This is blacktivism, uh, this uh, rehearsed uh, victimhood, which uh, seeks to uh, accumulate power at the expense of others instead of uh, promoting forgiveness and understanding genuine tolerance of, of people and uh, genuine uh, criticism of unrighteousness and bad ideas. Uh, we have departed so far and strayed so far from righteousness. It should be little wonder that uh, life is hard, cost of living is extravagant, mental health is suffering, the soul of Australia and Australians is suffering. We are in a pre-Christian culture. Uh, the, the hearts of men in this nation are rocky, unreceptive to the seed of the word. It doesn't take root, it doesn't bear fruit in many hearts in this nation. We have uh, many great examples of uh, isolated pockets of revival and righteousness and, and great Christian leaders in the, the pioneering and establishment of this nation, but it is not the normal average experience of Australians. Churches are much smaller in this nation than they are in America. Uh, there are easy contrasts to make and illustrate uh, the point that a reformation of the hearts of Australia, the doctrine of churches and the political culture in this nation is sorely needed. There are many theories about what could bring about a political reformation in this nation, uh, fixing the constitution uh, and conspiracies along those lines. Uh, many other theories as well, minor parties, um, election rigging, uh, but I promise you, it's the hearts of the nation which are the problem. You could put band-aids on all of those other problems, completely solve them one by one, and the heart of the culture would return to where we currently are. It would not take long because the parliament is a reflection of the people and the people's hearts are full of pride. What we need is reformation and it's got to start with us. If you are Christian, if you are Christian friendly, I encourage you to come to the Church and State Summit. Get your tickets now at churchandstate.com.au forward slash register. And we will uh, look forward to giving you a 25% discount on your registration 
when you book now. That's the early bird price and it will go away soon. Uh, get your discounts, get your tickets there because Calvin Robinson and many other high profile, high caliber speakers will be gathering. We usually have something like 20 different speakers across two days. Uh, it's fast paced, it's uh, never boring or monotonous. Uh, and it's always going to encourage you and equip you to be better informed and better involved in the public square, in the important public issues that the Word of God does speak about in this nation. And so let's not be silent and let's not be ignorant because if we are, if we refrain and if we hold back, then we are leaving the debate and the decisions to less informed, less righteous people. And that is a terrible result for the future of our nation and for the neighbors we claim to love. That's it for this episode of the Church and State Show. I'm Dave Pello. God bless you and Australia. Today, we need a special kind of courage, not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.